0: The reading for today is from John 15, verse 26, John 16, verse 15. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, So that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin, because people do not believe in me, about righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the Prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of Truth comes,
1: Now, one of my favourite books is by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's called The Hobbit, and I've got a copy here. Can you see that? Yep. Uh, This is the 50th anniversary edition. Now, The Hobbit was originally written for children, but people of all ages love it. Over 100 million copies have been sold so far. And it's the story of a great adventure, of a quest for gold and glory. Uh, the, the group of dwarves and one creature called a hobbit are called together by the great wizard Gandalf who leads them through a dangerous first part of their quest. But not halfway through the journey and with worse dangers still to come, Gandalf informs them that he's actually got to leave. And in this book, let we read you a little bit of the reaction when they find out that he's going to leave them. Gandalf says, I always meant to see you all safe, if possible, over the mountains. And now, by good management and good luck, I've done it. Indeed, we're now a good deal further east than I ever meant to come with you. But in the meanwhile, he says, I have some other pressing business to attend to. And it says, the dwarves groaned and looked most distressed, and Bilbo wept. They had begun to think Gandalf was going to come all the way and would always be there to help them out of difficulties. But he's going. There is distress, anxiety... Fear, grief, and a good deal of weeping. They feel utterly bereft. What on earth are we going to do without him? Now, Gandalf was the most wise member of the group, the most experienced. He always seemed to know what to do, but he would not be moved on this occasion. He says he has other vital business to attend to. He must go. But before he goes, he promises to introduce them to a very strong ally who will help them on their way. Now, there's a lot in that story that connects to our scripture reading today. We're in the farewell discourses of John's Gospel. It's a section that starts in chapter 13 and actually takes us right through to chapter 17. And, you know, it is actually an amazing thought that in John's book, John's Gospel, fully one third of it is devoted to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth before his cross. One third is devoted to this time period, and a lot of it is in one room, the upper room, with Jesus' teaching. And that is some way to write a biography. It just shows us how crucial those events were. And in the passage that Reba just read for us, the 11 disciples, Jesus' closest followers, are reeling. They feel bereft. Jesus even says to them right there in uh, verses 5 and 6, Now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me where are you going. Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. Filled with grief. In fact, a couple of chapters earlier, two of the disciples had asked where he was going. But by chapter 16, no one is asking any questions. They're stunned into silence. They've just been told that he must go and leave them. And when he goes, the world will hate them. That was what we thought through last week. Their own people. In the first instance, the Jewish community will reject them. And it says here that in extreme cases, some will think that if they kill a Christian, they're offering a service to God. It's kind of murder as worship. Now, all this is coming without the physical presence and the reassurance and the guidance of Jesus, their Lord and master, who they've loved and followed for three years. No wonder that they're filled with grief. Now, what does Jesus say to them at this point? Have a look in your Bible. And this, I think, is we—it's easy to read over it, but it's actually quite stunning, quite profound. And we're going to dwell on this today because we need to see it too. In fact, I'm convinced that what we see here is crucial to Christians in every generation if we're going to live the life of faith and follow Jesus faithfully. It's this. It's better that Jesus went away because now we have the Holy Spirit. Let me say it again. It's better that Jesus went away, because now we have the Holy Spirit. Now you may think I'm bordering on heresy, I'm starting to prefer one person in the Trinity over the others. Just look at verse 7, this is what he says, key verse. But very truly I tell you, and that by the way marks the solemnity of what he says, very truly I tell you, It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says he's going and it's actually for their advantage. It's for their good. It's for their benefit. It's Preferable. How so? Because he says he must go in order to send the advocate, that is the Holy Spirit, There's a connection here. Jesus must finish the work that he's come to do. He must be killed on a cross. He must rise from the dead on the third day. He must spend 40 days and then ascend to heaven before he can send the spirit. See, Jesus must do all of his work, complete his work. Each of these events must take place in order to seal the deal and and procure our salvation. And once Jesus has ascended to heaven, he will rule at the right hand of God the Father, and that's an image of position of the ultimate authority and power. And then, and only then, can the Holy Spirit come. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and he is sent into the world by the Father and the Son, depending on which verses you read. And when the Spirit comes, he is going to inaugurate a whole new era of human history. The final one, the era, the epoch, the Holy Spirit and that is the time period that we now live in. It began at Pentecost and those of you who are familiar with the book of Acts and those exciting events in the early church where Peter stood and preached on the uh, uh, day of Pentecost and uh, uh, many many people responded if you think about the historical view there for a moment there were about 120 followers of Jesus something of that order gathered together, huddled, scared. But after the Spirit came at Pentecost, more than 3,000 were added to their number in a single day. And what about now, since the Spirit came? Not quite 2,000 years ago. There are now something like 2.1 billion people on the planet, 2.1 billion people who are professing Christians at some level of depth. 2.1 billion people would claim the name of Jesus. And just think, how many more could there be before Jesus Christ returns? The Spirit has brought millions and millions of people under the sweet rule of Jesus Christ and he brings tens of thousands more every day. Not only that, the Spirit lives in every Christian's heart so that we are never alone. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith the Bible says because of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus says to his disciples he's going he really means it that it's actually for their advantage. Now I want to explore three reasons why that's true for us today. Why it's so much better that we have the Spirit. So much so that actually those people who used to walk the streets with Jesus in Palestine and who sat Uh, Listening to him on the hills in Galilee and in the villages, they would have good cause to envy us, not the other way around. Here are three reasons from our text uh, why it is for our advantage that Jesus went away and sent the Spirit. Firstly, because of who the Holy Spirit is. Secondly, because of what the Holy Spirit did. And thirdly, because of what the Holy Spirit does now. Who he is, what he did and what he does now so firstly who the holy spirit is who is he i've already said a bit about this but in our text he's identified by a particular title and uh, have a look at your bible maybe if there's some young people or children listening see if you can spot the title that jesus gives this holy spirit in chapter 15 verse 26 and in 16 verse 7 same word used twice Fifteen twenty-six and 16 verse 7 and if there were any young people present in the room i would get them to put their hand up but I hope you could see the word there which in the reading we had is advocate when the advocate comes whom I will send to you from the father the spirit of truth and then in verse chapter 16 verse 7 unless I go away the advocate will not come to you now what does this title tell us about who the Holy Spirit is Now, the answer at this point is rather confusing. We've got a bit of a problem because there's the problem of language. There's no exact equivalent to this word in the English language. And so different versions, different translations use different words. And perhaps some of you who are reading from a different version, you didn't have advocate. You had another word. Now, the Greek word behind it is paraclete. And actually, there are a few versions that just think, (laughs) sack this. We're just going to say paraclete. But the problem is No one knows what a paraclete is in English, and it does sound a little bit like parakeet. Uh, You will find different versions using different words. The King James, the old Elizabethan translation, used the word comforter, when the comforter comes. The Revised Standard Version, a little bit more recent, used the word counsellor, the counsellor. The English Standard Version, that's a version of the last 20 years or so, uses the word helper and as you've seen the modern new international version and many others use the word advocate. Who is the Holy Spirit? He's the comforter, counsellor, helper, advocate. How should we understand this title? Now all of these English translations, English words, give us one aspect of who the Spirit is but each of them doesn't give us the full picture. The King James Version, the comforter, worked well in Elizabethan times because comfort had the idea of giving somebody strength. Somebody's weak and failing and struggling, and you came alongside and give them strength. But nowadays, comforter often carries more of a sense of stroking your back and giving you a cup of sugary tea. And it's even worse in America, where a comforter is actually a fluffy quilted blanket. Now the second translation was counsellor and that also conveys some of the meaning but the Holy Spirit is not like a career counsellor or a marriage counsellor or a sort of therapist who sits and listens and tells you things about yourself. He's more like a legal counsel who comes alongside with expert advice and defends you. Helper, that does carry part of the meaning. His role is to help us. Not to understand the helper is an inferior sort of assistant who comes along trotting along with you. He is God after all. And then finally, advocate. Now that does have a legal sense, an advocate in a courtroom, someone who defends you like a lawyer. But do you have a personal relationship with a lawyer? So how should we understand this title, the Holy Spirit? The essence of it is this, someone to stand by you someone who will stand by you that is the root idea and this someone is really powerful he is a he not an it the holy spirit is not a force he is a person and he comes to stand by the christian believer to be your comforter the person who gives you strength and courage sometimes when all other allies have deserted you. To be your helper, the one who gives you much needed assistance. To be your counsellor, giving wisdom and advice and words, sometimes when all other words have deserted you. To be your advocate, he defends you when you are falsely accused. The Holy Spirit is all of these things and Jesus says that when he goes away, he will send the Spirit to be your advocate, to be the one who stands by you. And that is the greatest advantage of all because this is how you and I get to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is the means by which Jesus makes his home in our hearts. This is how Jesus can be risen and ascended and gone away and yet also really present in the lives of millions and millions of his followers through the Spirit. This is how Jesus is with us today through the Holy Spirit's work. Later in the New Testament, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, 1 John 4, John writes this, This is how we know that we live in him. That's in Jesus. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. So This is how we know we have confidence and assurance that we are his and that he lives in us is that we have the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. You are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness that's what he comes to do to give us life because of righteousness so the first reason why it's to our advantage that Jesus went away but sent the spirit is this who he is the paraclete the advocate counselor comfort helper the one who comes for us and stands with us then there's the second reason what the holy spirit did now I'm going to skip forward in the passage uh, but don't worry I'm going to go back to finish up at the end with the middle bit we're going to skip forward to what the Holy Spirit did if you look at uh, uh, verses 12 to 15 and remember that we're in the upper room with Jesus where we've just eaten the Passover meal and Judas has gone out into the night and we know that he's going to betray Jesus the clock is ticking time is running low Jesus knows he only has a few moments maybe just a couple of hours to give these final instructions to these disciples and they hear these urgent messages and these are the things that Jesus really wants them to hear and the things that we really need to know too but just imagine for a moment would you just just in your mind's eye just look around the room and see who it is who's receiving all this vital instruction what do you see a group of men probably a bit scruffy educated i think for the most part to primary school level although highly literate most of them would probably trilingual they're not uh, graduates they're listening intently they love to listen to jesus but they don't have perfect recall in fact all through the scriptures the Gospels we hear about how they get it wrong and don't understand. They're just a group of ordinary men they, and at and this time they're in varying degrees of grief and shock. They're trying to process everything that's becoming at them. Their emotions are surely going to interfere with their listening and their recall. A group of ordinary people who make mistakes, who mess up, who easily reach capacity, who have limited IQ. Now, what chance is there that any of these guys is really going to remember what Jesus said that night or on any other occasion? Won't it just be a kind of patched together mixture of vague memories and conflicting stories and legends and rumours like the rest of history sometimes seems to be? Now, Jesus addresses this problem directly here in verses 12 to 15. And this is really important for us to understand what he's is going on here. Here's what he says. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own, He will speak only what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. Now, these verses are sometimes quoted as though they are applied to every Christian, that Uh, the Spirit comes to you and guides you into the truth. And in a certain sense, that's true. But the context here says otherwise. The context is vital because at this point, Jesus is not talking to every single Christian. He's talking to a group who will be known as the apostles. A group of 11, they will elect a 12th one, and there will be a 13th called Paul. Now, the word apostle means A messenger somebody who brings a message from somewhere someone else it could be used of a a kind of a delegate or a courier from an important person bringing a message uh, to an an ambassador uh, in another country or it could be used as just an ordinary person bringing a message but in this case uh, Jesus designated these guys as a specific group with extraordinarily high status they were the New Testament equivalent of the prophets of God In the Old Testament and those prophets had a unique role in God's as God's spokesman and some of what they said is written down in scripture and it's quoted as God's words they they often start by saying thus says the Lord and Jesus Apostles we might say Apostles with the capital A are this special group in the New Testament they were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ they'd spent time with him from the beginning of his ministry and they saw him risen and they could authorize scripture, God's words, these 12 and the 13th Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And this is therefore a special kind of person who, and, and their words and what they say is restricted to them. What does Jesus say to them? Verse 12 I've got a lot more to say to you. You can't bear it at the moment. Of course they couldn't. Verse 13 The spirit of truth will come and guide you into all truth. And this spirit only hears speaks what he hears, who does he hear it from? Verse fifteen shows the unity of the spirit's message. It comes from the Father and the son. Look at verse fifteen. All that belongs to the Father is mine, says Jesus. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me, and he will make what he will make known to you so the the three persons of the Godhead are jointly involved in this process of communication the father reveals truth and gives it to the son and jesus speaks it to the spirit and the spirit brings it to the apostles so this is the second reason why we are so fortunate to live this side of jesus ascending to glory because we now have the word of god written down for us by the holy spirit through human authors as our permanent possession the spirit of truth, he's referred to here, he came to those men and he communicated true things to them and they recorded them truly. That's how we can have confidence in the word of God in the New Testament, which assumes the truth of the word of God in the Old Testament. The spirit never makes a mistake. The spirit of truth. And so we can be utterly confident of the words of the apostles because they do not speak on their own authority they are spokesmen for jesus himself now what i've said is i suppose if you've been around church for a while you've heard things like this but let me just put it um, maybe in a slightly more fresh way to read the new testament to read the new testament is to read the words of jesus that he has given to communicate truth to you his words to you so this is not second best it's a statement of incredible authority in the words that those men were given you can't say anything higher than this the father the son and the spirit are jointly involved in producing a message for the believer that's why it's a great privilege to live this side of Jesus returning to heaven we have his word who the Holy Spirit is, the advocate, what the Holy Spirit did. He he gave them the, the word. And finally, what the Holy Spirit does. What does he do now? And here I'm going to skip back to verses 8 to 11. How does the Spirit help followers of Jesus in their great quest, the journey of faith, full of dangers and toils and snares as we make our way through to a heavenly city? What does he do? Well, one of the things he does here, this is fascinating, is to convict and convince the world. To convict and convince the world. Look at verse 8. When he comes, this is the spirit, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit is going to come and convict or convince, or here it says prove the world to be in the wrong, about three things what is this saying the spirit comes to people in the world people who are just living life as they've always done and people who have no real deep consciousness of God and people who actually think they're they're doing all right and he he wakes them up he shows them what they're really like he shows them he reveals their guilt to them he exposes their personal sin and wickedness he, he wakes them up to the reality that there is a God and that you need to get right with him. And, and you need to do that before it's too late because there's a judgment coming. And he guides people into the grace and forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can give through the good news, the gospel. When he comes, it says he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. He's going to expose the world, convict it and then convince it. About Jesus about these three things sin righteousness and judgment I'm going to look at those three briefly and then we'll wind up sin you see until the Spirit comes to us we never really think of ourselves as sinners do we if we're honest we weren't particularly worried about our thoughts our speech our deeds or our motives before we became a Christian we thought we were basically quite good people Suddenly, when the Spirit came, God took away the scales from our eyes and we saw ourselves as we really were. A lot of people in the world will confess some of their sins, but they do it only when they get caught. And such examples can be found in the Bible as well. Pharaoh was confronted with his sins. And when he was, he was pretty embarrassed and said sorry. So was King Saul and Balaam. There are plenty of examples of people who get caught and then they confess. But real repentance brought about by the Holy Spirit is much deeper than that. It is hating your sin because you see just how awful it is. And you see that the true offense is against a loving and holy God. You come to see your sin for what it really is, an offense against the one person who is supremely worthy of your love and honor and obedience king david when he'd sinned very grievously in psalm 51 wrote to god against you you only have i sinned and done what is wicked in your sight now he'd sinned against a lot of people but what he was acknowledging there was that the ultimate victim of our sin is god himself when the spirit comes we are convicted we're convinced of sin and that's the only way we are, is through the work of the Spirit. Then we're convicted, it says, with regard to righteousness. Because, verse 10, Jesus says, I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. This seems to be talking about the standard by which we measure ourselves. We all have some kind of standard, um, probably It's subconscious most of the time. It's some way we have of reckoning how good we are and how well we're doing in our lives. And we usually choose to compare ourselves with some other people uh, who we think we're better than. And before the spirit comes, we tend to think of ourselves as pretty good. Like the Pharisee in the parable that Jesus told, he goes to pray. And as he's praying, he sees near him a tax collector, which is one of the considered the the outsiders and the, the scum of the society. And he looks at this guy and he privately thinks, thank God, I'm not like him. But the tax collector has no such illusions and he beats his chest and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I wonder, are there some people who you tend to look down on? You disregard them or write them off in order to make yourself look good. They're the ones that you use to make yourself feel righteous spirit convicts us with regard to all that he shows us that we're not really righteous at all we need a perfect righteousness from outside of ourselves we're not the ones that stand in judgment and judge other people we're the ones that need to be forgiven and have righteousness given to us and in in verse 10 it says Jesus is going to the father where you'll see me no longer Jesus will be raised from the dead which is God's vindication of him God's seal of approval in saying this one. Of all the human beings who ever lived, this Jesus is absolutely flawless and sinless and morally perfect. Therefore, death can't hold him. He'll be raised as a vindication and go to the father. So the only person who really is righteous is Jesus himself. And it's his standard of righteousness that we need. The Holy Spirit convicts us of that. Thirdly, finally, he convicts us with regard to judgment. Judgment, not the most popular topic in our society not the most popular topic i'm sure even in our conversations with one another but there is a judgment to come the bible says this from start to finish Uh, this world won't just keep turning like an endless clockwork machine god is actively sustaining it but there will come a point where he draws a line in the sand and calls human beings to account sometimes called the final day or the day there is a judgment coming when books will be opened where an absolutely fair and impartial standard of justice will be applied to every single human who's ever lived, and then who will stand? The Holy Spirit convicts us of the fact that we are going to face a holy God and we will have no protection because of our sin and lack of righteousness. And the Holy Spirit comes to people in the world and confronts them With these truths through the word of Jesus, that reliable word that was given through those apostles. He brings this conviction, this convincing. And if you think about it, that's the only way any one of us ever became a Christian in the first place. The only way any one of us got to know Jesus and be changed was through the work of this powerful Holy Spirit. Who he is, the advocate, what he did gave truth, infallible truth to those men. And what he does now is bring it and apply it to us, convicting and convincing us of sin, righteousness and judgment. Now, what does this mean for us this week? What does this mean? On on the one hand, it means that the Christian believer is never alone. You know, if Jesus had stayed on earth in his body and uh, maybe lived somewhere in Galilee, uh, we wouldn't have that much access to him. You know, there are two billion Christians. The amount of time each one of us could spend with him would be very limited over the course of uh, a lifetime. But actually, the Bible teaches that Jesus now dwells in our hearts through faith. So he's always with you. And therefore, we need to live consciously in the presence of of God and Jesus through the Spirit day by day. Perhaps a good way of doing that is just to wake up and before you put your feet on the floor out of your bed in the morning, to greet Father, Son and Spirit and ask that you would live in their presence and please them, ask that you would be empowered to take up your cross and follow and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and cause his fruit to ripen in your life. Another implication, is that Christians are called to testify, to bear witness, to speak up in the world about what's happened to them, about Jesus, what they now know. It's sometimes scary, isn't it? Perhaps you're shy. Perhaps when moments like that come, you, you, you feel you you mess it up, you fluff your words, you don't know what to say. Perhaps you're anxious, you're worried that if you stand up as a Christian, People might judge you or not like you or exclude you. And, of course, that is a genuine risk. Are you ready, though, for that time when somebody wants to know the reason for the hope you have? Will you pray for that? Because Jesus says the Spirit comes and we also must testify. Do you think that anyone is beyond the reach of Jesus and his redeeming power? Think about it. Could anyone be actually beyond the power of the Holy Spirit who can change the heart of anyone? The most aggressive, hostile, entrenched opponent can be turned and saved gloriously by the Spirit. The Apostle Paul is one example of that. Do you easily feel defeated and overwhelmed by this world? Here's the point. We need to be living in the power of the Spirit by his word because he's the Spirit of truth. And finally, if you're a person today who is listening and you're thinking through your own faith commitments, you're not sure of your spiritual position, let me ask you, have you yet been convinced about your own sin, about the emptiness of your righteousness and about the judgment that will come from a holy God? If you are sensing that those things are true and that you need to do something about it, then let me urge you not to wait, but to put your trust in Jesus Christ today to ask him to send the holy spirit to you and to change you and give you new birth and if that is you and you're doing that i would love to talk to you and pray with you this week do do drop us a line by email let's pray together shall we father we thank you for the powerful holy spirit the advocate the one that we need in our lives day by day and thank you that even though jesus has gone we're not the worst off for it. we are not been left as orphans, but we are in fact most blessed people. Would you please impress these truths on us this week and cause us to live more and more fully for your glory. Amen.